Why was there a colonial panic surrounding the Hijra community in the 1850s in India? And why did the family unit emerge as the central target of surveillance under the Criminal Tribes Act of 1871? Hi, this is Shrishti and you're listening to the In Perspective podcast, where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society and culture. And in this episode, we're taking you back to a conversation from May 2021, when we spoke to Dr. Jessica Hinchi. So to start off with, we wanted to ask you about what were the factors that led to a colonial panic surrounding hijras in the 19th century? You know, we're talking about a community that's structured by discipleship relationships between gurus and chelas, um, and who have usually have feminine gender expression. and were, you know, historically have been um, collectors of donations and performers, which is a practice that's known as Badai. Um, and so in the 19th century, the British termed the Hydro community eunuchs. Um, and this is, of course, like an English language term, um, which the Hydro community today um, does find offensive and was also a criminalizing term, which I'll get into um, more as well. Um, so in around the middle of the 19th century, um, certain provincial governments in India, British India, um, became concerned with the Hydra community. And this happens first in Bombay in the 1830s, and then um, in northern India. So what is now UP and Uttarakhand, which was known as the Northwestern Provinces then, um, and in northern India around the 1850s, 1860s. And, you know, this was in both cases a provincial project. So it's not as if there is this sort of like cross British India, like, you know, the entire colonial establishment was um, was anxious about the Hydra community. But these projects to police or to control the Hydra community popped up in different regions at different times. Um, so. After um, 1857, uh, there were you know, anxieties about gaps in colonial knowledge. Um, and this had, you know, been the case earlier, but, but after the 1857 rebellion, those colonial anxieties about what the British didn't know about Indian society, um, and particularly about the peripheries um, or the margins of Indian society, really intensify and really become sort of structural. So part of the reason why um, you see this colonial panic about the Hydra community really intensifying in northern India in the, particularly in the 1860s, is in the aftermath of the 1857 rebellion. And these, you know, colonial anxieties um, about their knowledge or lack thereof of Indian society or um, what we're seen as being um, criminal or deviant um, or marginal groups was intensifying generally in this period, right? So this is also the period that you get, um, for instance, the Criminal Tribes Project um, developing and this anxiety about um, groups that were thought to be hereditary hereditary criminals. Um, also, you know, projects around um, female prostitutes, um, European vagrants. So, you know, you can see how there's this border concern and this 
um, anxiety about the Hydra community is a part of that. Um, so for the British, the, the Hydra community was really seen as being ungovernable and in these sort of multiple manifold ways. Um, and really the figure of the Hydra becomes a sort of conduit really um, for quite a number of different colonial preoccupations um, and concerns at this time. So they really see the, the so-called eunuch problem, as it's called, and I'm using scare quotes once again um, there. They see that eunuch problem as being uh, this sort of multifaceted, you know, manifold problem. So first of all, they see the Hydra community as embodying sexual disorder. Um, and they're constructed as being habitual sodomites um, and also as being prostitutes. And, you know, this term sodomite um, is used to refer to men who have sex with men during this period. So it also misgenders um, the Hydra community who have feminine gender expression as well. Um, and, you know, this idea that uh, the sexual practices of Hydras were deviant um, is really reflective of um, a broader sort of colonial concern with groups or people who are seen to challenge a colonial sexual order that is based on um, heterosexual reproductive sexualities, um, you know, um, heterosexual and monogamous conjugality, patrilineal um, uh, inheritance um, as well. And so this is it's a, it, as we might expect, this is part of like um, the story of the colonial regulation of sexuality in that sense too, right? That um, we're probably familiar with from the legal challenges over Section 377. But I think there's also another story this is connecting to, which is that in this period, a lot of discipleship-based communities um, become figured as uh, sort of perverse sexualities. And this is something that Indrani Chatterjee has written about as well. Um, so, you know, certain discipleship-based communities were sort of being constituted as being a sexuality, right, a type of sexuality. The Hydra community is among these. But, you know, we could also think about like tantric religious traditions or the Devadasi communities as well as examples. Um, so in addition to that um, and connected to it is also a concern with gender expression and the ways that it is seen to trouble a binary conceptualization of gender. Um, the British insist on classifying hydras as men and referring to them with um, male pronouns, although in 19th century sources you do occasionally get, a, you know, in the English language, I'm talking about pronouns here, you do occasionally get you know, a she slipping into English language records, um, but there's this persistent classification of the Hydra community as men. But then this sort of, you know, discourse of disgust um, really um, about their feminine appearance. And um, this is part of a much broader point, right, which is that part of colonization, part of the management and classification and governance of populations is, um, you know, a binary concept of gender, right, that um, works for and is, a, you know, meaningful for and appropriated by some colonised people and marginalises other colonised peoples. Um, 
So in addition to those gender and sexual concerns or intersecting with them, there's also a lot of colonial anxiety about um, hydra performance and the Thai um, practices, uh, which are often also termed begging. Um, and so they're seen as an obscene and um, even unclean presence in public space. Um, and this is part of a broader concern, particularly, once again, after 1857, but uh, more broadly, I guess, the mid to late 19th century, um, with the order of public space. Um, and, you know, during this period, you have public nuisance laws being used to police marginalised peoples um, in public space and, of course, also, elite Indian communities are very much collaborating with colonial governments in that project as well. So, you know, hydras get caught up in that concern with um, the order of public space. There's also concerns with um, that the hydra community are seen as a wandering group. And in fact, actually, um, they do appear to have been largely sedentary, and most hydras appear to have been. Um, although they did travel for um, as a part of their Badai practices um, in usually in short, you know smallish areas but they're sort of seen as being wandering people and the British um, often linked mobile people to criminality so that feeds into this you know these criminalizing discourses and then you know I guess the other major sort of aspect of this colonial discourse is that the Hydra community are portrayed as being the kidnappers, castrators, and um, also um, the pimps, really, of um, of male assigned children. So um, you know this, these discourses of kidnapping, castration, and prostitution of children do really distort hydra practices of initiation. Um, and we can talk more about that maybe a little bit later, um, but this is, you know, this is a very distorting discourse, um, but it does frame the criminalization of the hydra community as being a child saving measure. Um, and so it lends that moral sort of discourse to this. So you might have noticed like a very common thread that runs through all these concerns that I've mentioned is this discourse of contagion um, and sort of pollution and dirt that you see in a lot of that colonial discourse. And I argue in the book that this really dehumanizing language of the Hydra community is sort of filth or dirt. Um, is really an indication of how the the figure of the Hydra is sort of framed as being um, a source of disorder who undermines the colonial social order, right? And that's that's quite common with these discourses of dirt that you often see applied to people, that it's framing them as being um, disorderly and out of place. Um, so I think just to sort of round this off, um, I think it's really important to also recognise that some elite North Indian men really uh, supported this anti-Hydra campaign, which um, comes into fruition in the 1870s. These North elite North, North Indian men um, were from sort of educated um, and, I guess, professional backgrounds, um, people who were, um, you know, for instance, were colonial officials or lawyers, journalists, intellectuals, and so on. And 
they increasingly identified as being middle class in this period in the mid 19th century. And part of their sort of articulation of their class identity, which was wrapped up with um, often, I mean, particularly for the Hindu middle class with caste identity, but also amongst Muslim middle class men too, with a sort of um, high status, respectable Ashraf sort of status too. Um, they articulate their class identity through, um, you know, a gender and sexual politics that does sort of stigmatize uh, marginal figures as being sexually immoral. And, you know, that sort of denunciation of people on the margins, um, particularly marginal women, actually, um, is part of how the middle class identity is made, right? And so although there isn't a major moral panic about the Hijra community amongst middle class Indian men, um, it's not as big an issue in the North Indian press, for instance, in the 1860s and 1870s as some other issues related to gender and sexuality, which I know you've discussed on this podcast previously. Um, so women's education or prostitution um, and so on. Nonetheless, when... Um, you know, these middle-class Indian men did write about the Hitra community. It was always in a tone of condemnation and often very much echoing colonial discourses, though with some differences of emphasis. So, for instance, um, there was a much greater emphasis on um, the, the uh, perceived enslavement and um, kidnapping and castration of children by the Hitra community than some of these other concerns with, for instance, mobility, um, or with even actually really with sex, the sexuality of the Hijra community, although some um, North Indian commentators did talk about them as sexually immoral, that wasn't actually as central um, to their concerns as this discourse around um, slavery and kidnapping and castration. So North Indian um, elite men, or some of them anyway, really did back this project, called for very harsh measures against the Hijra community, including their banishment um, from British India or their isolation, um, you know, on an island or on a hill somewhere, so that they would be separated from Indian society. So I think this is important in explaining why the Hijra community continue, has continued to be criminalised and seen as a problem by the state in post-colonial India. And um, it's also, I think, important um, just in terms of making sense of like where this panic happens and 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 why and how. Um, yeah, and just one final thing I just want to point out here is that the Hijra community was the center of this um, concern with the so-called eunuch, but several other groups of people who troubled or undermined a binary understanding of gender from the British perspective were also on occasion classified as eunuch um, and would also come to be criminalised by the state. So there were a number of, you know, people and practices that we might today term gender non-conforming or non-binary, um, and that gets wrapped up in this anti-eunuch campaign too. So notably the Zanana community who are, you know, so-called effeminate men, but um, men with a, a feminine gender presentation, often performers, um, who didn't 
were not necessarily members of lineage-based, discipleship lineage-based households like Hydra's. Um, they were often policed, um, you know, by the colonial state, um, but also, you know, uh, other people like male performers who played female roles, right, uh, or men who were religious devotees and who performed femininity as a part of ritual or devotional practices would sometimes also get classified by the state as eunuchs as well. That's really, really uh, interesting and fascinating. And like you said, so many threads from um, previous podcasts that we've done on gender and sexuality in colonial India. Um, and I think that was a really important point to flag in terms of the context of the role that elite Indian men who formed what was then being identified as the middle class, the role that they played, because I think there's also this tendency to say that, oh, everything bad comes with the British or it's their understanding and, you know, where they ruined Indian culture or whatever. So I think recognizing um, that is really, really important as we speak about these histories as well. I think like you'd mentioned earlier, it almost follows from this discussion around the colonial panic is the sort of discussion around criminalization and what led to um, hijras being classified as a quote-unquote criminal tribe um, under the 1871 Act. And could you tell us a little bit more about how did state policy seek to eliminate the community altogether? Um, the Criminal Tribes Act, we get into some sort of like boring legal stuff here, <laughs> so I'll try to be brief. But um, part one of the Criminal Tribes Act, as some of your listeners might know, um, targeted groups who were known as criminal tribes. And these groups today are known as the Mukhtajati or as being um, denotified tribes. Um, and these were a pretty diverse range of groups. They were generally socially marginalised in some way. Often they were low caste, um, many were sort of nomadic or seasonally mobile. Some of them were sort of associated with um, hunter-gathering practices. Um, and they were policed um, and criminalised under Part 1 of the Criminal Tribes Act. Part 2 of the Criminal Tribes Act was an act for the registration of eunuchs. And so the Hydra community and, as I mentioned, some other gender non-conforming people were classified as eunuchs and they were policed under Part 2. Um, so they, um, this also allowed the, yeah, the registration of a broader range of people beyond the Hydra community as eunuchs as well, because a eunuch was defined as an impotent man, um, which was sort of a bit of an odd definition, but was come up with so that they could police people who were not castrated and they didn't have to bother with medically examining people to find out if they if they were. Um, and under the Act, it policed um, so-called eunuchs who were reasonably suspected of sodomy, kidnapping and castration. So you can see how that those criminalising discourses I was talking about were embedded in the language of the law. So eunuchs weren't officially a criminal tribe. Um, they were partly policed under the same law just for administrative convenience because registration was, police registration was the central sort of mechanism of both parts of the act. And this is actually a period where police registration as a sort of technique of governance is really expanding. Um, and Radhika Singha and also John um uh, Wilson have also talked about this as a sort of age of registration, right? So that's one reason why they were policed under the same law. 
Um, another reason is that there were numerous overlaps in the sorts of criminalizing discourses um, through which both the criminal tribes, so-called criminal tribes, and so-called eunuchs were understood. And every time I say criminal tribe or eunuch, I'm using scare quotes, right? Um, so first of all, the idea that there were certain types of crime that were culturally specific to India, and this is obviously a highly racialized discourse, right? This is that there are certain terms, types of crimes that almost culturally inherent right, to, to Indian culture. Um, and the idea that these people were inherently criminal, therefore, right, that comes through in both um, the criminal tribes context and also this anti-Hydra campaign. Um, also, these links between mobility um, and criminality that I mentioned as well um, are really strongly evident in both, you know, the criminal tribe discourse and the you know, eunuch, so-called eunuch discourse as well. But another element that I think is really important is that actually gendered and sexual discourses were really central to stereotypes of criminality in both um, the context of the criminal tribes and of the anti-Hydra campaign. Um, so, you know, at, we, and we can talk more about this, um, but criminal tribes women were persistently... Um, characterized as being sexually immoral. And this is part of a much broader sort of, you know, um, colonial and also um, middle-class Indian characterization of low caste women as being sexually deviant, right? And so those discourses of, you know, gender and sexual immorality were evident in both cases as well. Um, in and so that's sort of why they're policed under the same law, right? As the criminal tribes, um, the re, you know registration being a central part of this act, and then also these criminalizing discourses. Um, in answer to your second question, so like how was this a project of elimination, and why was this a, an explicit project to eliminate the hetero community? Um, so this was really explicit, right? So words like um, extirpation, extinction, extinguishment, um, extermination even were used to describe the Hydra community, uh, the Hydra project, as well as like dying out and so on, right? So it's, it's absolutely explicit. Um, in terms of how this was to be carried out, right? How the colonial state envisaged this elimination project working, um, a few elements, I can I can sort of answer this by going through a little bit of what was in the act. So first of all, um, so-called eunuchs were registered um, by the police, and this was intended to track their numbers, to track the decline, right, in the population, but also it was intended to prevent initiation into the Hydra community, um, and also castration. And the colonial government really equated um, initiation with castration, which really uh, didn't capture the much, you know, more significant meanings of initiation and also the practices of initiation. Um, and it doesn't seem that castration was necessarily um, always a part of hydra initiation either, right? But they equate these things. Um, secondly, male assigned children um, were removed from the households of people registered as eunuchs. 
and they were forcibly removed. Um, uh, and then they, the idea was that they would be returned to their guardians or parents. Um, often that didn't quite pan out um, because either their um, biological parents couldn't be or relatives couldn't be found. In some cases, um, families rejected children um, who had joined or, or young people who had joined the Hydra community. Um, and so sometimes missionaries or, um, you know, sort of more elite um, Indians become the guardians of these children. Um, but the idea is to remove male assigned children so that um, there won't be initiations into the Hydra community and they will die out. Now, of course, not only children, also adults were initiated into the Hydra community. So it, it ignores that, but that was the idea. Um, so thirdly, um, people who were classified as eunuchs couldn't become guardians. They couldn't adopt. They didn't have inheritance rights to create wills or to pass on an inheritance. And again, all of this was intended to interfere with initiation um, and also Hydra succession practices as well. And then finally, the colonial government sought to sort of culturally eliminate the Hydra community as well. And it did this by um, prohibiting them from performing in public or um, wearing um, female clothes or um, ornaments, right? So presenting themselves as feminine in public. Um, and this was really intended to sort of erase their visible public presence. Uh, so the emphasis is on them doing these acts while being seen from a public place, right? So there's this both like attempted uh, communal and I guess even sort of physical elimination project as well as a cultural elimination project coming together. And this was a little bit unusual, this explicit um, elimination project. Uh, in British India, historians have mostly associated these sorts of um, elimination projects with settler colonies, which are based on the dispossession of Indigenous peoples from their lands, um, and often, you know, have involved forced child removal, for instance, but also other sorts of projects of elimination. Um, and so, you know, that's something interesting to think about too, is that, you know, this in some ways is an unusual project in its explicitness of, of, of elimination, um, but perhaps has connections to other forms of colonialism that we see in other contexts as well, while, while being distinct in certain ways too, I would be clear. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's such an important um, history to be aware of and for more people to know about because I think in any other context it would be something that would be talked about to a huge extent right when there's that kind of violence and trauma attached to the history of a community and it's unfortunate that this isn't um, widely known or discussed in the way in which say the partition and the trauma associated with that is uh, within India um, but there is also a history of pushing back um, against these norms and against these policies. So could you tell us about in what ways um, did the Hijra community undermine this colonial legislation and policing? I mean, the Hijra community obviously endured, right? As a social category and as, you know, discipleship and kinship lineages. Um, and so these communities live on, right, fortunately. Um, and I think by their very survival, they 
undermined this colonial project of elimination. Um, but in addition to that, um, people who were classified as eunuchs, including Hydras, um, especially who were more prominent, right, and more numerous amongst that criminalized population, they really shaped the colonial governance um, of this criminalized category, notwithstanding the asymmetrical power relations, right, that existed between them and the Indian police at the local level, who they were they came into contact with most often, as well as um, district officials, you know, people in the magistrate's office, the magistrate and so on, right? Um, so they was, were really asymmetrical and often quite, you know, particularly with, I guess, local police, you know, quite coercive and, um, and sometimes violent relationships. But nonetheless, um, criminalised people really did push back Right, against um, the state in a number of ways. So I think to, to answer this question, there's a few things I think you can think about. So first of all, um, the colonial category of eunuch um, was really ambiguous. Um, it shifted. It was very nebulous. And so people were often registered and then deregistered and then registered again, right? So people came in and out of the view of the state. And that was partly because social groupings and um, people's lives, people's bodies didn't line up with colonial categories, right? And so those colonial categories are constantly reformulated in an attempt to sort of make them work and they never really capture, right, the social complexities. And so because of this, these efforts to make hydras legible to the state often fails, right? But another really important factor here is that people who are classified as eunuchs are also often contesting this classification by the state, right? So they do this through petitions. They often say, I'm not the sort of person this act is meant for, or they contest parts of the act, right, that they should be allowed to continue to perform or to collect the die for various reasons. And so they um, contest the way that the state classifies them or they attempt to, right? And I will say most of those petitions were rejected. So that wasn't the most successful way of, of resisting the state, but it was certainly one that they tried and um, one that did undermine these colonial categories and colonial governance often. The policing and punishment of eunuchs, uh, so-called eunuchs, right, was also really uneven across northern India. And so I think this shows us a few things, right? We often think of the colonial state as this sort of monolithic, unified entity, right? Um, and in fact, like all states, it was an assemblage of different practices and institutions. It was actually quite disaggregated um, and its authority was often sort of really uneven. Um, and so Indian and British officials at the local level sought to govern hydro communities in quite varied ways, right? So you've got different policies in different places. Often they just don't, sometimes, not often, but in some places, you know, they just didn't really bother to enforce the law, right? So that that's part of this story too. But a really major factor in precisely that unevenness of the colonial state's um, authority and of local governance is also the ways that hydro communities and other criminalized people um, you know, evade the police 
try to resist um, the police or to sort of escape their view in various ways. Um, and they do this in numerous ways. So um, mobility was a really key sort of form of evasion and resistance. So um, there, people would um, uh, sometimes permanently escape the district they were registered in, um, go live elsewhere, and then just sort of not be registered again. Um, people would try to move for short periods. So, you know, they would leave for a little bit. And often then, even when they moved back, the police had sort of lost track of them. And, you know, they could, um, and it would be a few years before the local authority said, oh, we lost track of this person and they'd get in trouble, right, from the provincial government. Um, or people would just move for short periods or keep on the move and so on. So these various strategies of mobility were really important and there was no past system, no um, system by which licences to move from your district was required under part two of the Criminal Trials Act against the Hydra community. So um, police registration was the only way that the police could actually keep track of where they were. Um, Finding spaces in which to perform and to express their gender was also a really important way that um, that the Hydra community sort of got by and also evaded the state. Um, so people continue to perform in public and just and um, sometimes also to dress in in women's clothing too. Although that was more likely to get the attention of police, right? Um, but nonetheless, people broke the law um, and performed and dressed in, um, you know, expressed their gender in, in public. They also found sort of creative ways to get around the law. So there were reports of Hydra's combining masculine and feminine forms of clothing so that they could sort of say, no, no, but I'm not dressed as a woman, right? So, and, but then still sort of express their gender, right? Through aspects of their clothing that were feminine and that, you know, weren't classified in that sort of binary gender way of the state was trying to impose on them. Um, you know, so they also try to resist um, registration of their property and colonial interference in Hydra succession and inheritance practices. And as a result of this, the colonial state actually sort of gives up trying to regulate Hydra succession and inheritance. And um, most chelas were able to um, sort of assume the property or the and the position of their guru, guru when they deceased. So that was one area where their resistance was really quite effective and the colonial state just mostly gives up on that aspect of the act. Um, and then beyond this, there's also just, you know, coping and getting by um, and trying to piece together, um, a, you know, a livelihood um, under these conditions of precarity um, and criminalisation. And... Um, you know, there were reports of the impoverishment of Hydra communities in um, in northern India because of the ways that this ban on performance affected their livelihoods. But we know that people had other sources of livelihood too. Um, many Hydra households had um, were engaged in some form of agriculture or animal husbandry, um, so they could keep that going. They could still ask for donations. And so, you know, people survived and got by and continued to initiate um, members into the Hydra community too.
I think I'll end there on that question, but I think just to say, you know, this was um, a story of like st of state violence, but it's also a story of like, of survival and and evasion and resistance as well. Yeah, and that's amazing and so important for us to reflect on and to just know about. Um, You'd also mentioned early on when we were talking about the panic and the criminalization of hijras that there was um, discounting and criminalizing different aspects of just how they live their life and their community structures in terms of the panic around both, you know, gender and sexuality and also around protecting, you know, young children from hijras and so on and so forth. So a lot of narratives around that. But a counter to that is seen in um, autobiographies and some biographies of Hijra life in colonial India. Could you tell us a little about this and how they challenge the colonial understanding of Hijras? I found um, a an archive of sort of very brief and fragmentary um, biographies um, in the colonial archives, which were produced as a result of this criminalization, right? So out of these archives of criminalization, you do get um, these sort of brief life histories of people who are classified as eunuchs. Um, unfortunately, I haven't found autobiographies for the 19th century, although more recently, um, Hydra autobiographies have been published. Um, although you do also get quoted sort of um, statements or narratives from um, Hydras in 19th century anthropologies um, written by British colonial officers, but also some um, Indian scholars and officials as well. Um, but yeah, in, so in my book, I'm sort of attempting to write a history of this archive, right? So of this um, archive of, you know, the so-called eunuch and to treat this archive really as a sort of cultural and historical artifact, right? A subject of study in its own right. And in that, I'm really drawing upon, um, the excellent work of Amara Stola and also Anjalia Rondaka, um, both of whose work I would really recommend to your listeners. Um, and they've really done a lot of work on gender and sexuality and sentiment and colonial archives. It's really fascinating. So by foregrounding the practices through which the archive was made, um, I'm interested in thinking about how different narratives were archived or circulated in different ways, right? So when we look at the local sort of district level um, archives, we see actually a lot, many more varied narratives about the Hydro community because accounts that challenge the dominant colonial sort of narrative were not often circulated to higher levels of government, right? So these biographies of um, Hydras that you referred to, they especially appeared on police registers. And so these are only found at the district level. They only were archived there. And they're also criminalizing documents, right? They are, they are literally an instrument of the criminalization of this unique category. And they're often, you know, really fragmentary. They record people's lives according to official categories of information um, that are considered to be important, um, you know, for the control of this population. But these fragments um, 
of people's lives often challenge dominant colonial narratives and also um, the sort of elite Indian narratives that we were talking about earlier as well. So I'll just give you a few examples of that. Um, so firstly, um, related to Hijra forms of work, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier. So um, Bhattai, um donation collection and performance practices were really important to Hijra communities. That's, that's very clear from the 19th century archives. Um, but what I found really interesting is that when you look at the police registers and the property registers especially, um, you see that um, Hydra communities were engaged in actually a quite wide range of forms of work and had a range of different sources of livelihood. So um, you find mentions of people who were agricultural laborers, who were tenant farmers on sort of small plots of land or um, had a um, garden of you know, fruit trees, um, uh, who were engaged in animal husbandry, um, and then a whole set of other sort of seemingly random occupations, like a sh there was a, an itinerant shoe seller was registered, right? Um, and people who um, were domestic servants, in a few, and, and so on. So there were quite a wide range of forms of work were registered, but mostly agricultural work. And so that sort of is interesting for two reasons. First of all, um, not only most of the archival sources um, really emphasize performance and donation collection or begging as main, the main occupations, but also the contemporary anthropology on the late 20th and early 21st century um, Hydra community has as well. Um, and that's because Bandhai is central, but it was not the only form of work, right? But it's also important because you know, the Hydra community are repeatedly framed as being economically unproductive, right? That they're engaged in these forms of work, uh, like performance and so-called begging, which are not productive, but also that they're incapable of economically productive work. And so it's for that reason that, unlike with the criminal tribes, um, there is no attempt to make Hydras do particular types of work. They're simply banned from certain types of work and then you know, expected to try to make their way however they can, right? But actually, this agricultural work was the sorts of work that the colonial government uh, really wanted the social margins to be engaged in, right? That they saw that as reformative and moral and industrious work. So it really troubles a lot of those, those discourses around hydra work that you see in a lot of 19th century sources. Um, a second area that I'll highlight is around Hydra initiation, which we've sort of talked a little bit about. Um, and as I mentioned, initiation was usually equated with castration um, and, and also kidnapping. And this was the case, as I said, in both colonial and um, these sort of, you know, middle-class Indian narratives from the late 19th century. Um, and these discourses certainly shaped these life histories um, that we have archived that, you know, Hydras were always asked when they were emasculated, um, as was the colonial term, um, you know, how they entered the Hydra community and so on. But even these police registers, these really criminalizing documents, they do actually show a much more complex story. Um, so they show that 
Hydras were in fact initiated at a range of ages and um, there's certainly many instances of adult initiation. Um, they also do give us a little bit more of a complex idea of the ways that discipleship lineages and hierarchies were related to um, relationships of enslavement. And, you know, so some people did, it would seem, enter the Hydra community um, after being enslaved. And this was not unusual. Um, monastic communities in northern India well into the 19th century um, did include members of slave origins. And, you know, discipleship and enslavement was partially overlapping in a lot of social contexts um, and including in, you know, much more sort of socially and economically powerful contexts like these large monastic estates, which you see in a lot of different, um, you know, Hindu and Sufi and Buddhist traditions um, in 19th century India and earlier. But that overlap between slavery and, and discipleship was really contingent and particular. And so we also see that um, this, this idea that like everybody who entered the Hydra community was kidnapped or enslaved is just absolutely not correct whatsoever, right? Um, and so we see some of these multiple ways or multiple circumstances in which people became initiated into the Hydra community um, and that, you know, that sort of straightforward equation of initiation with um, kidnapping or enslavement um, was was really distorting um, of the meanings of initiation and also failed to really capture those more complex relationships between discipleship lineages, kinship, um, various other sort of hierarchical relationships and in some cases enslavement, which were really contingent in particular. So, yeah, so that's sort of how I've tried to analyse these sources. But I do, I would just say, I think, you know, the more different kinds of archives of Hydra lives that we can find, the, the better picture we will have of this, right? Um, there are certain limits to these materials as well. Absolutely. Um, and that's really, really important. Um, Another aspect of the Criminal, Criminal Tribes Act is something that you've spoken about initially that we'd come back to uh, later on, is um, the idea of the way in which the family unit emerged as the central target of surveillance under the enforcement of this act. And like you mentioned earlier, it wasn't just limited to criminalizing the hijras, but uh, quite a few communities who were then classified as denotified tribes. Um, so... In what ways did this family unit emerge as the central target of surveillance? And how did this understanding impact middle-class Indian gender and caste politics? Or was there like a relationship there? Yeah, thank you for this question. Um, so I think definitions of family were really important um, to both parts of the act, right? So, I mean, in the anti-Hydra campaign, we've been talking about the definition of Hydras as not family right, as Hydra households, their discipleship, lineages, which were often talked about through kinship terms, that intertwined discipleship and kinship um, uh, relationships, they're not defined as family. And that enables a lot of the violence, you know, state violence we were talking about. So, for instance, 
child removal is enabled by the definition of hijras as hijra households as not families. Um, but the family was also really pivotal to the policing of the criminal tribes in somewhat different ways. Um, so, and just as a reminder, we talked about how the criminal tribes were quite diverse groups, right? Generally socially marginalized, but really um, very diverse in their livelihoods, very diverse in, quite diverse actually in their, um, uh, in their caste position to some degree as well, in their mobility practices. Um, so it, it is hard to generalize about this, this enormously varied um, population of criminalized people. But, okay, so why, uh, how was the family a part of this project to police the criminal tribe? So in most cases, um, people were registered on the basis of their family or household membership. So you have both adults and children registered as criminal tribes um, and people of all genders registered as well. Um, and so in that respect, you know, the family is the object of policing and surveillance, right? Um, and there's also these efforts as a result to know who is related to who, right? Like the colonial government is, and the police, and then later on missionaries and Indian religious reform organizations that get involved in this project, they want to know who's related to who, right? And because that's so wrapped up with the policing of the criminal tribes in ways that, you know, I, for reasons I'll talk about in a second. Um, Colonial governments also sought to produce productive family units. So there's a lot of sort of these discourses of making these criminal families into industrious, productive families, right? Um, through sedentarization and also through particular forms of work, mostly agriculture, but sometimes also, you know, factory work or other types of so-called industrial work. Um, and also in certain contexts, colonial governments and these religious organizations, especially the Salvation Army, um, they also seek to transform familial relationships as a way to transform the criminal tribes. Um, so just really briefly, I'll just quickly say what the Criminal Tribes Act did um, and then talk about how family sort of comes into it. So I, as I said before, registration by the police is really central. There were sort of two main ways that the criminal tribes, so-called criminal tribes were policed. Um, firstly, they could be confined to their place of residence. So if they were, if they did have a permanent place of residence recognized by the state, they could be confined to their village um, and they would have to find some means of work within their village. They needed a pass from the police to um, migrate or move from their village. Um, there were roll calls that were held usually daily and then also um, as sort of another roll call held by a higher up official every now and again. So there were these ways of like checking are you in your, in your village each day. Um, sometimes they also had to report to police stations um, daily or sometimes even more than once a day. Um, so they were the main mechanisms, right? This registration and this enforced sedentarization. The other option was to um, forcibly relocate people and confine them in what were called penal colonies, well, colonies, criminal tribe colonies, but they were essentially like penal institutions, right? They were sort of like detention camps. Um, and 
there they would be forced to do certain kinds of work. Um, they couldn't move from beyond the boundaries of the settlement. Um, and of course, you know, their daily lives were sort of regulated in a number of different ways. So why then did the family become central to this project? Um, so I think, first of all, criminalization of the of the criminal tribes um, was often justified through really gendered and sexual stereotypes, right? Um, which were shaped by middle class. Um, Indian gender and sexual politics, which were wrapped up with class and caste politics. So I mentioned before there's the stereotype of the sexually immoral criminal tribeswoman, which comes up again and again. Um, and this was often sort of focusing on um, their marriage practices, um, as well as perceived extramarital relationships. Um, and sometimes criminal tribes women were also explicitly labeled prostitutes. And um, if, you're if your listeners are interested in this, um, Baba Mitra has recently written an excellent book about how this label of the prostitute was really applied very widely um, in 19th century and 20th century India to women who were out were perceived to be outside of sort of high caste Hindu norms of conjugality, right? And particularly low status women. So the criminal tribes are sort of, you know, wrapped up in that. And um, that does draw on this like particularly high caste, middle class um, stereotype of the low caste woman as being hypersexual, as being obscene. Um, and a threat to sort of the high caste home as well. So criminal tribe marriage practices are portrayed as being perverse. Um, in some cases, um, female sexual immorality was also used to portray parenting and mothering practices as being criminal obedient. And then this is explicitly used to justify child removal from the Sansi community in the 1890s and also in some other contexts too, right? So those discourses lend weight to the criminal tribe project and they frame the family and its marriage and parenting practices as being sort of deviant or perverse or immoral, right? So a second reason why family is really significant in the Criminal Tribes Project, I think, is a broader story. And it's about the broader ways in which, you know, intimate relationships really structure um, and are shaped by the carceral state. Um, and so we could look at, we could think about that in a lot of different contexts. Um, but in this case, you know, certainly this idea of hereditarily criminal populations did mean that the family became quite central because there was this idea that um, the this sort of criminal caste occupation that criminal tribes were thought to have was sort of passed down hereditarily within castes and families were sort of seen as the basic building block of the caste, right, of a jati. So therefore the family does become central because of that, because of those criminalizing ideologies. But in addition to those sorts of carceral discourses, the policing of the criminal tribes often took the form of attempting to sort of um, geographically fix or redistribute populations on the basis of family units. And so you've got these various efforts to tie families to particular places, to 
um, in some cases, what was called planting out, um, which involved forcibly relocating families from one part of, of the Northwestern provinces, so what's now um, UP, um, to another part, like from, for instance, from the Western districts to the Eastern districts, and then isolating them from other members of um, their community in isolated family units. Um, you also have, of course, efforts to put people into um, penal institutions on the basis of family membership too, right? So all of this is sort of about trying to manage the relationships between families and social groupings and space, right, in order to control and sometimes also with the hope of sort of um, transforming or what was called reforming the criminal tribes. And, you know, people who are classified as criminal tribes often contested the ways that um, the colonial government and missionaries defined their families, right? So they're often separated from people who are their relatives or who they consider to be families. And there's all these negotiations because of this, of people saying, I want to be with my relatives. You've separated me from them. And then, of course, the authorities say, no, but they're not part of your family because the authorities are defining family in a different way. Often, I mean, in the case of British colonial officials, often a nuclear family, but, um, you know, in, in ways that don't make sense to the, these criminalised populations. And so I think the broader point is really that colonial carcerality, right, these carceral regimes of punishment um, and incarceration, worked in these really intimate ways and that was shaped by people's efforts to form and to maintain their relationships too and so there's a story about this with prisons that we could think about too right which and of course prisons are supposed to separate you from your family but people's relatives manage to sort of keep in contact with prisoners in, in multiple ways and that makes the boundaries of prisons porous so there, there's this story happens in different ways in a lot of different carceral contexts Absolutely. I think uh, and that's fascinating and resonates so strongly in some of the notions around family and uh, community identities, identities that we see in India till today, which are really, really strong. Um, and finally, you'd uh, written about along these lines in a similar context about the circumstances under which the colonial government in North India ended up launching a matchmaking campaign in 1891. So could you tell us a little bit about this and what role did their concern with marriage practices and conjugality play in shaping their attitudes towards criminal tribes? I think you've sort of also spoken about this a little bit uh, in the previous answer. You know, I wasn't really expecting to find this sort of project, to be honest, um, in, in the archives. But um, in the 1890s, um, the colonial government starts a marriage arranging project um, with a particular criminalized population, the Sansi population, and actually um, quite a few different groups ended up being classified as Sansi or Sansia. Um, it seems that more, a lot of people who were classified as Sansia would have affiliated with other terms um, like Pantu or Beria or Nut, um, and a range of other terms as well. So a lot of nomadic people get um or mobile people or people who are perceived to be nomadic in some way end up being classified as Sansi and they don't necessarily identify with that term. But anyway, so 
what happens is that district magistrates and also the superintendents of the criminal tribe settlements, um, they essentially become marriage brokers um, who communicate with the families of girls and women who are unmarried and with either the families of grooms or grooms themselves um, to find appropriate marriage partners. And I think this really points again to this sort of very contingent and contextual ways in which gender and intimacy in intersection, particularly with caste, um, shaped colonial castle regimes. Um, so under the CTA, there was always some degree to which marriage was sort of regulated by the police or by missionaries when in a later period, you know, you had the Salvation Army and also some Indian religious reform organizations running criminal tribe settlements. And this was because under the past system, if a woman was to be married in a matrilocal community um, where she would relocate to her husband's um, household upon marriage, she needed to get a pass from the police to relocate to that household. And so that meant that the police were always sort of engaged in some degree of marriage regulation because, of course, they could give or deny those passes for people to get married. Um, but a few factors meant that in the 1890s, you've got this much more heavy involvement of the state in actually finding people marriage partners and communicating between families. One of those reasons is that people who are criminalised um, as members of the Sansu community demanded official help um, with marrying their children. Um, and this was because the Sansi population had been um, either planted out, right, so put it re forcibly re relocated um, in smaller family units and then scattered all over the eastern part of the northwestern provinces. And so this meant that they couldn't leave their village, right, because they were under the past system, but they were disconnected from their wider kinship networks, right? And at the same time, some um, Sansis were also put into penal settlements. Um, and so they were also disconnected from their, their kinship networks too. And so this meant obviously that previously arranged marriages couldn't go ahead, but also people couldn't arrange marriages for their children, right? And so they demand the assistance of the state. They really, you know, protest this, they send petitions and so on. And what I think is really interesting about that is that at the same time, this marriage arranging project is actually wrapped up with a forced child removal project that happens in the 1890s. So at the same time, there is a settlement that is set up for children. Children were removed from their parents, um, particularly in who were in institutions already, but also from some of these planted out families I referred to. Um, and they're put in this settlement called at Babagard. Um, and that is, you know, it is forcible and, you know, a forcible child removal, parents don't consent to it, although officially they're supposed to, but they, the colonial archives pretty clear that there's not parental consent. Um, and so criminalised communities really strongly resist that project. They 
protest it every time higher up officials come to the penal settlement. Um, they, um, you know, constantly demand to see their children and there's reports of this. And so they're, it's interesting, you know, they're trying to make the state, colonial state work for them in some ways, right? By, because they need their assistance to marry their children. But they're also really trying to protest the involvement of the colonial state in other aspects of their family life, right, and their intimate lives, and particularly their parenting of their children, right, and their their um, guardianship of their children. Um, but so, okay, so one factor is the that you know criminalized people are demanding help to marry their children. Um, another factor is that the colonial state's really trying to sort of redraw the relationship between families and social groups in space. Um, and so this meant it really becomes involved in the management of intimate aspects of people's lives broadly, as we've already seen. Um, and as a part of this, the colonial state really becomes very concerned with um, single women and girls who are seen to be um, sort of disorderly in some ways or to pose a threat of disorder um, and to need to be under male control, whether that's of the state or of their fathers or of a husband. And so um, because of this concern with unmarried women and girls um, and particularly with their presence in penal settlements and this, you know, the, the, Lieutenant Governor at the time is really anxious about all these single women and girls who have been put into penal settlements who um, are either separated from their husbands because they're in jail or have become separated from their husbands or their fathers because of this relocation of populations or don't have a husband, right, and not married. And so this matchmaking campaign is a way to you know, make sure that these women are under male authority. And the Sansi um, women were among the most hypersexualized of the criminal tribes women. They were um, in the, you know, writings of both British and Indian colonial officials described as being um, prostitutes. And so their sexuality particularly becomes a sort of target, you know, of the colonial state, a real concern of the colonial state. So yeah, it's this sort of mix of um, of factors. But I think one, you know, uh, an important aspect of this too is that um, this sort of colonial management of marriage and of parenting with which it's interlinked is really quite contextual too, right? So um, in 1896, a policy change happens and then the Sansi community is relocated somewhere else. And I won't go into all the details, but essentially they stop removing children from um, their parents, um, partly because of pr the protests of, of uh, parents. But they also find that they're unable to successfully marry everybody off, right? And um, particularly to find children who were institutionalized at Fatagar and separated from their parents, to find their marriage partners, to find them work. Um, and so you see there the sorts of limits of this intimate sorts of forms of governance and how it's attempted in certain contexts, but is often resisted and um, 
and pressed against by criminalized people, right, um, who try to shape it in particular ways, um, and also how there's also a certain uncomfortability on the part of the colonial state with this level of, it, you know, sort of intervention into people's um, intimate lives as well. So it's really uneven, um, these sorts of negotiations around intimate relationships that you see happen between criminalised populations and the state and police and then later on missionaries and and religious organisations. And that's the note we ended our conversation with Dr Jessica on. We hope this made you reflect on the history of the Hijra community, the marginalisation that they have had to face and the ways in which members of the community fought back. We release a new episode of this podcast series every Monday, so be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios, the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films.